edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown against McCall and Harkin, and the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 23. Now this case involves wide-scale benefits fraud, but then comes down to a question about how the law should be interpreted. To explain, the two appellants, McCall and Harkin, were married to each other, but claimed benefits on the basis that they were single, and Harkin even claimed housing benefits when he was actually living with McCall. The relevant piece of legislation is the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, and in particular section 156 that allows for confiscation orders to be made in respect of benefits obtained by criminal means. Where this case becomes more nuanced is that the Act came into force on the 24th of March 2003, and while most of the offences were committed after this date, one offence by McCall and one offence by Harkin was committed before the Act came into force. The Crown in this case argued that so long as no reliance is placed on the pre-commencement offence when requesting the confiscation order, then there is no issue with the Crown Court making such an order. On the other hand, the appellants argued that if a defendant is committed for a range of offences, some of which occurred before commencement and some after, then none of the offences whatsoever can be dealt with under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. If this sounds like a bit of a dodgy loophole, then the Supreme Court was inclined to agree. Lord Kerr referenced parliamentary intention as he pointed out that it surely cannot have been the intention for criminal acts that are committed post-commencement to be out of scope simply because the defendant also committed an associated offence pre-commencement. In other words, what should happen is that relevant offences committed after the 24th of March 2003 can be dealt with under section 156, while those offences committed before that date could not be dealt with under section 156 because it hadn't been commenced yet. This would be a common sense approach. Furthermore, if the legislation was interpreted as the appellants had suggested, then it would allow decisions made by the prosecution to control the jurisdiction of the court. Think about it, the Crown Prosecution Service could effectively say, well, we don't want the court to be able to apply a confiscation order under section 156 of the Proceeds of Crime Act, so we will bundle the prosecution up with some of the offences committed before the section came into force. The application would also become inconsistent, as some offences that had been committed after commencement would be decided by reference to what, even at that time, would be old law. Not only is this illogical, but it appears to fly in the face of the rule of law. On the other side, Lords Reed and Mance had some different theories. For example, the approach taken by Lord Kerr was as likely to restrain the actions of the Crown Prosecution Service as much as anything else. The idea that the CPS used the system in a somewhat tactical manner is not exactly new, but rather than expanding this freedom, the approach by the majority would actually prevent them from associating the offences. This also links to the important question of whether the position of the Crown Court is impaired, and while for the majority it would be constrained in its ability to apply confiscation orders, Lord Reed examined the Act as a whole and came to the conclusion that it will not be in a worse-off position at the start of the case, 
as it will not be clear whether a confiscation order can be applied in respect of offences. In other words, section 156 is simply setting out the process more than anything else. There was also a concern expressed by the minority about using the commencement order, which is a piece of secondary legislation, to interpret the Proceeds of Crime Act, which is primary legislation. The problem is that while the Act was passed by Parliament and therefore attracts the constitutional implications of parliamentary sovereignty, the commencement order is made by a minister whose authority in this respect is derived from the Act. Thus, using something that is subordinate to the Act to reinterpret the words that are laid down is problematic. For the majority, Lord Hughes partially responded to this by noting that it is not necessary to read words into the statute in order to achieve the same result. In any case, the core question is actually whether the approach taken will cause any undue negative impact on the position of the defendant. This is important in any case involving statutory interpretation, but is worthy of special attention in criminal cases, because an approach that is unfavourable to the defendant has personal consequences and might even impinge on their liberty. Nevertheless, in this situation, it would hardly be unfair for the defendants to have to bear the consequences under the Proceeds of Crime Act for offences committed after March 2003, as the relevant provisions were enforced by then. In terms of the rule of law, therefore, the offences were in force and publicly known at the time that they were committed, and there is no issue around things like retrospectivity. Overall, then, we can see that there are strong arguments on both sides, and if we were to look at things on balance, we would probably have to say that the decision of the majority is correct. It is the most sensible approach, it accords with our current understanding of the law, and it is mostly fair to all of the parties involved in the case, including the Crown Court itself. Nevertheless, I think we should examine whether it is appropriate to simply accept a majority decision of the Supreme Court in this situation. And what I mean by this is that a higher standard is applied when dealing with criminal law. We see this in prosecutions where the level of proof required is beyond reasonable doubt, but the same principle applies when it comes to statutory interpretation, so that a provision will not be construed against the defendant unless it is abundantly clear that this was the intention of Parliament. Given that there is a clear line in the sand, it is therefore surprising to see a split decision where the Supreme Court could not make up their mind. Furthermore, imagine for a moment that you are one of the justices who formed part of the majority. As a result of this, you know two things. Firstly, there is a higher standard for establishing criminal offences. Secondly, two of your colleagues have a clear opinion that this standard has not been met. In those circumstances, would you not be tempted to jump the fence to the other side, as it is clear that there is reasoned doubt about the interpretation, and even if you do not agree with it, there is no denying that that doubt exists? This might appear to be disingenuous or even dishonest, but would that not be a rigorous way to apply the higher standard for criminal-related cases? Another option might be to declare that for these types of judgments, a simple majority is not good enough and that four or maybe even five justices must agree for the decision to be final. The alternative is what we have seen in this case, an unconvincing majority decision 
that has an impact on an important and consequential area of the law. Well, thank you very much for tuning into another episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you do get a chance to rate and review on iTunes, that would be amazing. Uh, and you can also check me out on the website in the meantime at uklawweekly.com, uh, where you can go to get your free ebook, which is How to Answer Problem Questions, which uh, a lot of students have found very useful and I've got great feedback on it. So sign up there. I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!